Welcome to the School of Travel's podcast. I'm your host, Becky Gillespie, and each week I bring you stories of how travel can truly change your life if you take the chance to get out on the road and step out of your comfort zone. My guests also share travel tips and lessons they've learned along the way, which I hope inspires you to let travel be your teacher. Hello, listeners. This week I'm excited to bring you an interview with Chiara Terzuolo, editor-in-chief of All About Japan, and someone with a very unique perspective on learning from travel throughout your life. Also, if you're interested in Japan, Kiara has been living in Japan for several years, and in my opinion, is one of the experts on food and uh, off-the-beaten-track travel in Japan. We do talk about some off-the-beaten-path places in Japan, as well as her Tokyo Vegan Guide, that she wrote in 2017. So I hope that you enjoy it. Welcome to the School of Travels podcast, episode four. And today I am excited to bring you my good friend, Chiara Terzuolo, author of the Tokyo Vegan Guide, which we're gonna get into more later. But Chiara, welcome to the podcast. Hi, I'm very excited. It's my first podcast ever. We are very excited to have you. Yay. You have a lot of stories to share with us, I know. I hope so. First of all, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, okay, so, um, well, I'm half Italian and half American, and I've spent most of my life uh, basically following my parents around, mainly Europe, um, as they moved around for their job. And uh, so for the past, God, eight years or so, I've now been in Tokyo uh, since 2011, uh, doing a whole bunch of stuff. Um, I've worked in several different industries, but a lot of travel. Um, currently, I'm editor-in-chief of the online media, and I freelanced through that entire period as well as a writer and editor and consultant and, well, anything else that looks like fun. <laughs> Great. Well, as you know, on this podcast, and as you know, listeners, we are we talk about how travel has made you who you are today mm-hmm. and what travel has taught you. So I want to take it way back to the beginning. Oh, first wow. of all, <laughs> you're Italian-American. Where were you born? So I was born in Rome um, all those many, many years ago. And, uh, well, as I was saying, kind of, I've moved around my entire life. The longest I've ever been in any place is Japan at this point. Um, but in Italy, I probably spent in total about maybe four, four and a half, five years there, but that was always coming and going. Wow. So your, your parents, as you said, they travel for work. Yep. Uh, my parents were with the Foreign Service, both of them. So yeah, we tended to move every, you know, anything between two to four years uh, all around the world. Well, then again, mostly Europe. I would say that you had the opposite of my childhood. <laughs> it's true. Interesting. So travel has always been part of your life. Well, yeah, whether I wanted it to, to be or not. Um, I don't think I appreciated it as much then. Obviously, you know, it's it's not as much fun for a six-year-old um, as it is for somebody who's then 26. Uh, but I am very grateful for it now because I learned a whole bunch of languages and, you know, there's that flexibility of having to adapt to different places, which is at this point in the world, absolutely necessary. And uh, so, yeah, I have to be grateful for that. What languages did you learn to speak? So um, Italian and English are my native languages. And then I learned French. Uh, We lived in Paris. Um, And then Dutch, although it's a bit rusty right now. And then Japanese. So I've got five. Um, And because of, you know, the whole Italian thing, I can understand and sort of speak fake Spanish. 
Uh, thanks to the Dutch, I can understand a little bit of German. Um, I can't really speak it, but I can pick it pick it out bits and pieces. And uh, yeah, well, I also studied Latin, like any good Italian girl needs to. Um, that's not super useful, I must admit, though. <laughs> I took it for a year I, in high school. I remember the Gladiator poster on the wall. That's yeah, pretty much it. Yeah, it was fun. I was the only Italian in the class, so basically I didn't need to study. I would just look at the thing. It's like, oh, this is what this means. Yeah, good, done, translated. Next. <laughs> You're also, now I know you do some translation work, so I'm sure that Latin, maybe not translation with, with uh, so much mm-hmm. romance languages, but with Japanese? Well, I used to do more of it, um, but it's, I mean, it does pay quite well, but it's really not my thing. Um, I do some of it for work, um, just because I have to deal with, you know, clients who only speak Japanese and trying to sort of uh, put out a magazine in English. Uh, So I have to kind of be in the middle there and explain to them that the thing that is written may not look like the Japanese, but it's the same meaning. Uh, So that's fun. But uh, yeah, most of my work is Fortunately, not translation related anymore. Do you do any work with those other languages at this point, with Dutch or Mm, French? Not really. I mean, every once in a while, uh, for my current job, we do get um, requests from clients to get information or articles in other languages. And recently, we did have one in French, so that was like, I have, that's a first for me. Um, So that was kind of cool. Um, But Italian and whatnot, maybe a little bit here and there just for, like, social media stuff. But not much. Mainly in Japan, English, um, at least in my case, is kind of the main sales point I can offer. Right. So how did you, I'm curious about, like, as a child, how you learn these languages as you're going when your parents, for example, are not French. How, Mm -hmm. How old were you when you learned French, for example? Okay, well, actually, French is a really interesting one um, because... Basically, my first language as a child was actually Italian. Um, And then we kind of moved to the United States and a few other countries where I didn't get a chance to use it at all. And I, in fact, basically forgot it. Um, I think part of that was also willingly because my grandparents kept on, like, needling me in Italian. And so I was just like, well, I'm not going to speak this uh, because I'm stubborn as hell. Um, (laughs) But then I ended up in Paris. I was very young. I think I was about six maybe I think six is the first year of elementary school I think something around that and suddenly I had to relearn Italian because my parents decided I was going to go to the Italian school uh, in Paris along with learning French Wow now yes because they're you know their expectations are so low <laughs> in the end it's a good thing um, my French is a little bit strange because of it. But, you know, at the age of six or seven, children are just sponges. Basically, your language learning abilities are sponge-like until about the age of 14. So they just threw me in and were like, okay, get on with it. And it's basically panic learning. Like, you want to know what the other people in your class are saying. You don't, and so you kind of put A and B together, and your little neurons just fire incredibly. And within about six months or so, my Italian was quite decent. It came back, maybe, or I just relearned it. And my French was also pretty good, just because I was surrounded by it all the time. Huh. But you didn't speak it at home. Um, no. Usually we speak English, and with a little mix of Italian. Um... Until that point, we actually didn't mix as much, and so I think that was maybe my parents realized, oh, damn. <laughs> like, yeah, we 
have to do something about this, which is probably why they stuck me in that school. Um, but yeah, it's just, it, I mean, it's not osmosis, but it's basically just learning by listening. Wow. So you were, how long were you in that school? I was there for about three years, I think, um, in Paris and for, you know, outside, you know, things outside the classroom as well. I did them entirely in French. Um, that's where I actually learned to ride. Uh, and I went to, you know, these, France is a wonderful place if you're interested in riding and horses and things like that. They just stuck me in a sort of French, very normal, very, you know, regular riding school. And so, yeah, actually my riding terms are the best in French. I still remember them. <laughs> wow. Your life is just, it's, it's fascinating how travel and this constant travel and being thrown into different cultures mm can shape somebody when they're that young. Yeah, well, I think it's the best thing, really. Get it when you're young, because it's, it's so much harder. I, my last two languages I learned after the age of 14, and oh, my God, the difference. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. Did you find yourself, like, wanting to stay in one place when you were young and saying, no, Mom and Dad, I mean, you, I'm sure you, you knew that they had to move, but did you find, like, opposite to a lot of children in one place for several years that mm -hmm. you were like, no, I, I want to stay in this school for the next seven years, I don't want to go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, there definitely was that. And at a certain point, for most of my childhood, of course, I went with it. Um, but high school, I kind of put my foot down uh, because there was a chance of us being returned to Italy. At that point, we were living in the Netherlands. And I was about two years into high school. And I'm like, well, we might move back. And uh, I even went all the way to Italy and did, you know, some interviews at schools, like American schools and all these kind of things. And it's just like, I, I did not want to do that. And fortunately, uh, my dad, my mother at that point uh, had retired from the Foreign Service. And my dad was able to find a post at um, something different, sort of related. And so I met very kindly allowed me to finish out my years in Holland and I'm there in uh, the Netherlands and I am I am grateful for that because that was a really cool school to be in it's a European school so everybody speaks like three or four languages wow and you have to take classes in various languages so like um like history and English and geography were in English of course and then in Italian I did Italian duh math and um, of, like physics and things like that so it's uh, it was really neat and I had a lot of friends there so I'm grateful for that wow so four years in the same school yes yes okay. with but, your parents there yes with, okay um, do you have any brothers and sisters by the nope. way nope I don't think this is a I think it was a problematic enough child that they stopped at one <laughs> <laughs> okay I just wondered how that would have played in if um a you lot know. of but it's, um, I mean, I see a lot of diplomats and a lot of foreign service and military people. They actually do tend to have more than one child um, just because they kind of keep each other company. Uh, but in my case, I was usually my own company. So I didn't, see, I guess it, that's just how it played out. Okay. So, and I also want to ask, like, when you're traveling with your parents and they're posted in these different countries, mm -hmm. did you guys do a lot of travel outside of their work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, my parents love to travel, um, even now. I mean, they're both retired, but they still they come to Japan once a year. They travel all over the United States, where they're currently based. Um, they go all over the place. So this is something they really like to do. And as a child, it did the same. So, um, you know, wherever we lived, uh, usually it would be, because you have to be where the embassy is, it's the, the capital city, but travel outside of there, go see other... Um, other cities, of course, go back and forth between the U.S. and Italy for family things. 
Um, but yeah, that Asia was ne- like super international travel was not something we really did. Um, partially because of their work, um, so they can't take you know really long vacations. Mm. But uh, but yeah, around Europe we traveled all over the place. I've been to most countries in Europe. Do you have a, a trip that you remember taking with your parents when you were young that like had a big impact on you or that you really stands out for something that you remember learning from it or inspired you in some way? Huh, that's a really good question. I mean, we had lots, um, and I, it's like, because a lot of it was done when I was quite young, um, I don't remember, like, everything. Like, I was probably about four or five when we went to Istanbul, and, like, I only have, like, a couple memories of it, but I kind of remember, like, sitting on the stairs, surrounded by cats, and I was being fed endless amounts of Turkish desserts by the owner of the restaurant where my parents were chilling. Um, <laughs> so this happened a lot. They just kind of let me run loose. Um, and then, yeah, in the Czech Republic, actually at that point it was still Czechoslovakia, um, there's like all of these castles out in the middle of nowhere. There's this castle that just had hun- seemingly hundreds of peacocks uh, just strutting around the place. So I was, like, running after the peacocks. Um, again, I was probably, you know, five, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) So things like that. And, uh, I mean, I do remember the very Italian-style vacations. Uh, when we were posted in Italy, they, like, Italians take their summer vacations very seriously. It's nothing like Japan. So you'd have, like, two or three weeks, um, by the sea, or one time went camping, in the Marque area. Uh, so sort of went camping, and the great part of the Marque is that it has sea, and then if you just go kind of a little bit back, there's mountains. So went riding through, you know, the mountains, and went swimming in the sea, and they put do, like, you know, film festivals outside and things like that. And, yeah, that those I really, like, I really miss at the moment. Wow. Those long vacations. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, you know, having a vacation where it's long enough that you actually get bored at some point, it's like, I kind of miss being bored. That would be really nice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we leave enough time in our lives these days, so many of us, to be bored. No, but. and it's like, I think that's a really bad thing because the few times that I have managed to get a bit bored uh, when living in Japan, I've always done much more interesting things and had like much more interesting ideas pop out so one of my future goals is to have time to be bored by the way i do want to ask where is the marque oh okay Uh, the marque are kind of so it's not super southern italy so if you're like thinking at the boot it's about around the i don't know mid-calf area kind of (laughs) thing and sort of towards the, um, um, I don't know, east or west. Oh, like top of the boot, bottom of the boot? In oh. middle, middle, low part of the boot. Um, okay. Yeah, it's it's a good bit above the heel, as it were. It just sounds beautiful. I'm going to look I'm gonna it's, look this up later. Gorgeous. Look it up, listeners. We I mean, God, it Italy is just, um, Italy is so much more than the major cities, to be honest. I mean, Rome is gorgeous, and I mean, I should like it. I was born there. But the small towns are just, oh. You just get lost in them, don't you? You just feel time has stopped. And... Yeah, it's, it's so much slower, and I just I just feel Italians enjoy life so much more. Uh, that's another thing I'd like to recapture, kind of a slightly slower lifestyle and, like, you know, really good food all the time, dinners that last three hours. Like, that's 
that sounds like an awesome life. So. Well, and I have to ask you, how did a, a girl who was so familiar with Italy and is in fact part Italian end up falling in love and spending the most time she's ever spent anywhere in Japan, mm-hmm. which has the opposite, as you've been referencing, <laughs> kind of work-life balance? <laughs> well, that's... Yeah, well, I asked myself that a lot as well, actually. Basically, um, sort of the love affair with Japan started... Well, the love affair with Asia started in high school. Um, I was very into, like, martial arts, and I read a lot of books about, you know, um, Asian history and culture. Um, I mean, mainly Japan and China, but a little bit about Korea and, you know, some of other areas in, like, Southeast Asia. And I just thought, this is really, really cool. This is a very unique and very different culture. Um, And, yeah, so then I went to college, and I started out as a voice major, um, but then kind of moved into more like ethnomusicology and East Asian studies, and I had to choose a language for East Asian studies. And my choices were uh, Chinese or Japanese. And because I knew zilch, basically, about the language, I was like, oh, well, Japanese looks easier, so I'll do that for like a year and a half, and then I'll switch to Chinese, and then I'll do both. I'll know both. Woo! <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, no. <laughs> that was not easy at all. Um, but... I guess my decision-making had some positive aspects because, I mean, the more I got to know the culture, the more I realized, like, Japan is in many ways probably more suited to my personality. It's, like, it's it's not combative. It's, you know, it's it's a bit quieter, perhaps, compared to China uh, and, you know, Chinese ways of speaking and, you know, getting around in the world. So that was good. Um, but, yeah, I studied Japanese, and I went and studied abroad the first time at Kanda University, uh, Kanda, Gai, Kanda University of Foreign Languages, which is out in the middle of nowhere in Chiba. And well, there I did an internship, and there was this cultural internship thing, which, uh, where they place you, you know, in something kind of interest, some interesting company to learn about the culture. And I got placed at a shrine as a miko, so like the shrine maiden. Obviously not an official miko, only Japanese people can be real miko. Much to my chagrin, it was probably my favorite job in the world. But um, (laughs) yeah, and it was a pretty major shrine. So they taught me about the music and the dances that they do for weddings and, you know, ceremonies there. And there I got in contact with the koto, which is this big, I mean, you've probably seen pictures of it, but it's a big zither instrument it's kind of like this two meter long by about 30 centimeter wide hollow thing of wood with 13 strings and i was just crazily taken by this i mean i loved music to start with and you sing while playing the koto not for shrine music but um just more traditional koto music and i was just like oh my god this is so cool and i wanted to continue that and obviously that's a kind of hard thing to do uh, so can't pack that in your suitcase. Yeah, well, I couldn't pack it in my suitcase, so I couldn't really continue when I went back to university. But I started applying for scholarships for things and for grad school for it um, because I'm an idiot. Uh, no, I think it's very interesting. Well, it's very interesting. I've, I mean, it's, you know... Do what you love, right? Yes. Study what you but love. But maybe not spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on it. But fortunately, I didn't have to do that. I got a Fulbright scholarship, and they sent me off to Kobe University, where I got to spend a year studying how uh, koto and shamisen music is, you know, preserved and transmitted, 
and things like that. And then I got wow. an offer to go to uh, SOAS, the school of the unfortunately named School of Oriental and African Studies in London, uh, where I then got my master's in Kotal and uh, Shamisen performance. Fortunately, I mean, I got some money for that, and uh, I am a European citizen, so I didn't have to pay so much. And I got to spend a year in London, which is a lot better than spending a year in your parents' basement. <laughs> which was where? That's the question. Uh, they, where were they? they a roving gosh. basement, uh, I would say. At, the, at that point, they were in D.C. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, they, they actually had a basement, so that, that was a new thing. <laughs> um, but, uh, yes, I did that, and then I managed to wrangle. I kind of, like, I had enough of academia. I, I wanted to, you know, make some money and, you know eat on a regular basis, so <laughs> I looked for a job in Japan so I could continue the koto thing, and the best teachers are in Tokyo, so um, I was very, for it took me a year and a half to find a job that wasn't teaching in uh, Japan, because I was clear about that, it's like, I should not be teaching anybody English, <laughs> like, that would just be, <laughs> that would be sad all around, so, yeah, and so I kind of came back and started working. And, uh, yeah, I'm still here now. And definitely, I didn't think as much about, you know, the work-life balance then as I do now. Obviously, I was, like, you know, very early 20s and have a hell of a lot more energy and, you know, less knowledgeable about the world as well. So, uh, yeah, then again, I must still say, Japan, I mean, there is this culture of overwork and it is really awful. I mean, I'm pretty lucky. I don't have as many horrible issues as a lot of people I know do. Mm -hmm. But I can, wow. I mean, it just sounds like, so what, what it seems is that you just followed your curiosity starting in high school and just whatever yeah. you got into and what you found when you got there just led to the next thing and the next part. And it happened to continue to lean back to Japan, at least for now. Yeah, for now. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I know, I'm glad uh, it is because it is a really cool country. And for traveling, I think it is, um, it's a very travel friendly destination, I think, uh, especially if you don't live here. There's, you know, the JR Pass, which allows you to go all over the country on the bullet train for, you know, nothing, basically. And, you know, hostels here are incredible and clean and safe and cost, you know, very, very little compared to hotels. So, I mean, it's just, you can get everywhere by train, which is really nice. And I think is one thing that the U.S. I, I wasn't keen about. Like, you know, you need to drive. Um, unless you live in a really major city and, you know, especially like Wisconsin, <laughs> you need to be able to get somewhere uh, on weekends. But uh, yeah, I mean, it has its pros and its cons like everywhere. I feel the same. I mean, there's there's so much to love about Japan. And I, I personally understand how you can be here as I as I did as well yeah. for so many <laughs> years. But yeah, I feel like, you know, the U.S. and Japan have a lot of similarities in terms of the work ethic. But yes. Italy and Japan, comparing those two, it's like, oh, yeah other two ends of the spectrum, right? Oh, yeah. But wow, I mean, it just seems like you're not afraid to jump into whatever is interesting you. And I don't know if that came from just going through so many different experiences mm. as a child in so many different cultures. Because mm. I, I know a lot of my friends in Ohio, where I'm from, mm -hmm. they, you know, look at all these other places in the world, and it's quite a mystery. Maybe as you get older, too, you fear it a bit more. I think that's I true, actually. Um, I probably would not have done all of this jumping around now. Um, but I guess, yeah, because of the monetary aspect. I mean, at that point, I was like, you know, I had almost no bills, you know, as long as I had, you know, a couple 
you know, a couple thousand dollars squished somewhere in a bank account, you know, I, I could survive. Um, but, you know, with now I have to think about it a little bit more, but it's still in the plans to kind of resume that kind of slightly more nomadic lifestyle. Yeah. What do you love about traveling? Easy question, no. Like, it, it's, uh, I mean, seeing new places is great, and just kind of trying new things, and I mean, food, food is a big one for me, to be honest, I, I love food. Uh, so trying food, new foods, and wines, and drinks, and just just rambling around some place you've never been before, it it's mind-opening, I think, and, you know, it's... It's important to get away, I think, and I see this especially now that I've been in Japan for a long time, because you start getting so used to what is around you that you forget that in other places they do things completely differently. And, you know, that completely different way of doing things can, you know, inspire you or, you know, end up suiting you more, maybe, than what you're doing at the time. But unless you go, you're never going to find out. You can read about it, but, you know, reading about it and experiencing it yourself are, I mean, it's completely different. Well, I asked you about, you know, a trip you took with your parents and some memories you Mm -hmm. had there, but is there a trip that really stands out for you as you got older and were traveling either by yourself Mm -hmm. or with friends that really taught you a lot or mm-hmm. showed you something new? Oh, yeah. Well, um, throughout uh, grad school and my first years in Japan, I traveled by myself a lot. Um, just because it's hard to find a travel companion that I match with. It's like I'm, you know, I'm the person who will go to Paris and not see the Eiffel Tower. It's like, oh, hey, there's something down that side road. I wonder what it is. Who? And a lot of people don't like that. Uh, I mean, I, I learned quickly that it's like, okay, it's probably best for me to just kind of go on my own. That's Why don't fine. you want to see the Eiffel Tower when you're in Paris, Kira? I know. Well, I mean, I have seen it already, so that that kind of <laughs> adds to it. But it's like, you know, it's like, okay, major, there's some, you know, major, major um, attractions, tourist spots, whatever is that are worth seeing. Um, but, you know, seeing the minor things is more what I'm interested in, kind of discovering something that's a little bit off the beaten track. And I know that's, you know, everybody's like that now. It's like kind of cliche. It's like, oh, I found this. It's like, no, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's found this. But I don't know. I think it's in a way more memorable than taking a picture on the Eiffel Tower. It's like you obviously um, felt like you discovered it. You didn't, yeah. you know, Yeah, it's like it's the... something new. And, you know, I mean, it can be in a guidebook or whatnot that I'm perfectly okay with going to those places too. But, yeah, sort of something... Something more experiential, I guess, is what I'm looking for instead of just, you know, a nice Instagram picture. Right. So what did you find in Japan when you were traveling and doing these solo trips? Mm, So my very first solo trip ever I did at the end of my uh, first year abroad, my, well, eight months abroad in Tokyo, I went to Shikoku, uh, so one of the southern islands of Japan, and then to other places like uh, Shimane, um, which is sort of nearest Hiroshima, but not really. And that was fantastic. Um, like, that one was really off the cuff, so I basically didn't, you know, I didn't book anything. <laughs> I just got on the train and went. And, uh, I mean, I got myself in some issues there because, like, it's like, oh, hotels are closed or they've moved away or they've stopped. It's like, uh-oh, what am I going to do? Uh, but I kind of learned to deal with that on my own in a language where I was okay I was still not great at Japanese, but I mean, had enough to survive. 
Uh, that was fantastic. And like at that point, Japan was still not a real tourist destination like it is now. So I go to these villages in the middle of nowhere, Shikoku, and they're just like, oh my god, how did you get here? Um, You're so not Japanese. Fun. Yeah, obviously. Um, <laughs> but yes, that was really cool. So I like, ended up my very first night in this village. I was walking in from the train. I was the only one who got off the train. There wasn't even a person at the train. You just like dropped your ticket into a willow basket. Like, <laughs> um, so I'm trying to walk into town and whatnot. And I see this thing in the middle of the road with all these legs. And I was like, oh my god, it's a giant spider. Ah, I'm going to die. Kind of thing. And then I kind of like look at it closely and it's like, it's a crab. There's this giant crab in the middle of the road, and it's kind of staring at me. And I'm staring at it like, what are you doing here? Now, this thing, is, this little town is near the ocean and a river and whatnot, but it's just like, oh, hello. And then it, like, goes off. I'm like, well, that was weird. It's like the crab welcoming committee. Um, and then I, like, walk into town, and then I see that there's more of them. They're, like, all over the place, and there's people, like, you know... What what do you call it? Um, sweeping off their stoops and like very gently nudging the crab off the stoop and telling it to like, no no no, you can't come in. There are that many crabs. There's all these crabs <laughs> all over this damn city, our town. And I'm like, what is going on? So like, I check into my you know very rundown little hostel thing there with the person who's like, like very surprised to see me. I'm like, um, so what's with the crabs? And she's like, oh, do you not have crabs in Italy? <laughs> I'm like, not like this. No, we have rats. And, like, she gives this look of, like, she's terrified by the state of affairs in Europe. (laughs) You have rats. Oh, my God. But, yeah, it's like this is what they do. The crabs come up at, like, around sunset and just kind of go around the city and then leave. And then (laughs) they just do this every day and it's normal. Is it, like, throughout the year? Basically, apparently. It's just a thing. It's, yeah, this is, um, yeah, so, like, I went there because it's a very famous nesting area for turtles. And so it was, like, it was right at the beginning of the season, so unfortunately I didn't get to see any turtles. But I did get to see the crabs, um, which was really a cool start to that whole journey. Wow. And so, yeah, that that was definitely memorable. And I was like, I want to write about this. And so I did. And uh, that kind of sort of started the travel writing thing as well which then became like one of my major freelance sources of income and yeah so it's just it's those kind of things I think that you know stay in your mind rather than I could have gone and seen you know like all the major spots in Shikoku and I did see a few uh, but the thing I remember most is in fact that and a few of the other adventures slash misadventures I had there (laughs) it's like it awakes it awakens that or brings back that child in you of just this awe and you know spontaneity and yeah yeah well do you mind sharing the name of this crab town or do you even remember I don't even remember it to be honest which it (laughs) is even more magical actually it's like (laughs) I think it's so in Shikoku there is a uh, pilgrimage like throughout the entire island of 88 uh, major buddhist temples and I think, I think it's number 11 on the route. So maybe if you look it up there, you'll be able to figure out um, which one it is. It's the one where people put little one yen coins on every step up to the temple. Wow. Which I also remember because, I mean, I went and paid my respects before, you know, going into town because this, this, the temple was right near the, uh, the tiny, tiny little <laughs> train station. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was really 
kind of magical. Like you are walking up these steps that are glimmering in silver and, you know, filled with incense and then you meet the crabs. So <laughs> well, uh, I, need, I have to go meet these crabs and go to Shikoku. I've always wanted to do the it's, 88. It is fantastic. Like you can do bits and pieces of it um, and whatnot. But uh, that was a good one that I learned that, you know, in some cases, you really do want to book your accommodation. Or in some cases, I did book my accommodation, and they lost my reservation as soon as I showed up. So I think it's less, yeah, lost. Being uh, in quotes. Being, being in quotes. quotes. They were like, ha ah! suddenly. Um, fortunately, some dudes on Harleys came to my rescue at that point. That was great. But uh, like put you on the back of one and said, hey, I'll take you to another accommodation. Basically, or? yeah. So like I, I kind of rolled up. I was like trying to get to this hostel that's at the top of a cliff. I'm like, how do I get up there? And there were these guys in Harleys. I'm like, hi, I need to get up there. Can you take me up there? And they very kindly did. Uh, so I'm like holding on to the back of the Harley in, in like flip-flops for dear life. And uh, yeah, get up there. And then they, um, well, they lost my reservation. Um, so they then kindly rolled me back down and like stuck me at the closest bus stop. The Harley guys. The Harley guys. Cause they were going the opposite direction. I was not going to like impose on them more than I already had. <laughs> um, and yes, yeah, so I just sort of hang out at the bus stop there and there was a, um, hairdressers in front of the bus stop and they kind of went in said the hairdresser's like, well, this, she, she needs to wait here. And when is the next bus? She's like, well, it's an hour and a half. Um, so the very nice hairdresser let me just stay inside her shop um, drinking oh. cold tea until the bus arrived, and she gave me a comb, which uh, sadly I broke. <laughs> but uh, again, the, I, I find that so much more memorable than like, yes, I went to Kochi and I saw the statue of um, what's his name, Ryo, Ryoma, Ryoma, the great you know Meiji era statesman dude there. Um, but I remember you know drinking tea in this sort of hairdresser salon far better than I remember that. Wow. Yeah. It's just those magic moments of travel that yeah. you, you won't discover until you do it. So. Exactly. Wow. Thank you for sharing. No problem. You've had some quite, you've had, like you said, <laughs> adventures and misadventures. Oh, yeah. Well, let's talk about packing for a moment. Ooh. So I just have one packing question for you, like yeah. to ask everybody. Okay. So now that, you know, you travel a lot, mm. you've taken a lot of trips. By now, you probably have three things that mm. you find yourself always packing mm-hmm. and they really help you like are things that you feel like you can't now live without mm-hmm. on a trip um well i'm a big fan of the hitchhiker's guide to the universe and i go by the rule of you should always bring a towel um like <laughs> okay. the, a big towel a small towel a decent sized towel okay like a towel that you can basically wrap around yourself once um because you never know when you'll need a towel. You may. I tend to attract rain wherever I go, so <laughs> there is a good chance I'm going to get rained on. So having a towel to dry off a little bit is a nice thing. Okay. Um, you know, it can be it can be anything. Like if you get a cut, you can like stop blood with it. Um, you may end up in a hostel that doesn't rent towels or doesn't provide towels, so it's good to have your own. You might end up at a beach. You find a mysterious beach um, and decide to hop in. Uh, or a river. As you know, I always end up putting my feet in rivers whenever we go hiking. I do know. It's lovely. So, yeah, like, I think a towel is something you should always have. So, Douglas Adams rule number one there. Um, something else, this is a recent one, um, but for women, or actually, rephrase, for anybody who has periods, um, a couple pairs of thinks, uh, that kind of underwear that um, absorbs blood. 
Fantastic. Um, like, I was recent, recently, last year or so, in the Philippines, and I was looking for tampons. Mm-hmm. And I could not find any to save my life. I've, I've, this has been a, an ongoing problem. Yeah, like, in East Asia, Southeast Asia, this is not a thing. Um, so, I mean, I eventually found it, like, three, years, three days later um, in, like, some place. But it was quite an issue. Um, so having a couple pairs of those would have been very, very helpful. Uh, so that, um, that's my latest tip, I think. It's a good and, tip for the ladies. Yeah. And then yeah. another one is cash. Definitely always have cash. This is a very important thing, I think, for Japan as well, especially if you're going to go into the hinterlands, uh, because there's a lot of places that just do not accept credit. They do not accept debit. Mm-hmm. Uh, this happens in large cities as well, much to my eternal frustration as I try to use my credit card to get more miles for travel. Um, but yeah, and, uh, my personal favorite place to put them is actually like underneath the soles of shoes. Like I'll wrap it in a little, a tiny, tiny little like sealable plastic bag, you know, mini, mini Ziploc thing. So that if it gets, if your shoes get wet or anything, there's no problem. Um, it's also good if you get, you know, money stolen or something like that, you have some cash on you at all times. So those are my main three, I think. Now, related to cash, do you, when do you usually get your cash? Do you get it in the country uh, where mm-hmm. you're in Japan before you go in that other currency? Mm-hmm. Do you get it at the Japanese airport? Do you get it at the airport where you arrive? Okay. Well, it depends where I go. If I go to Europe, um, I, I always have like euros left over. Um, and my grandmother does still, at the age of 31, she still sends me, you know, a couple a couple 10 or 20 euro bills every once in a while so I'll end up using that um but it depends where I go uh in the case of um if I go around Southeast Asia um I tend to get money before arriving there just like so I can start immediately at at the airport in Japan at the airport in Japan okay yeah a lot of people ask that like oh should I get the should I get the money before I go or like when I I mean yes there is a difference you know maybe five ten dollars in fees and whatnot um I like just having the money when I get there because you know there's nothing worse than arriving and like you need I don't know some aspirin or desperately need a cup of coffee or something and not having cash um so I just do it in advance and then in other countries like um you know if I go to Singapore or something like that then um I just won't take out any I'll just put everything on card Okay. I, I also have, I don't know if you have this, the uh, an ATM debit card. I yes. have a Charles Schwab card from the um, U.S. I don't have that one, no. Or any, it, it could really be any ATM card that doesn't is not going to charge you international yeah. fees. Charles Schwab, for Americans listening to this, or any listener that, if, if you're looking to start traveling, um, then you could like look for something without uh, international ATM fees. Yeah. And there's a lot of credit cards that do that, too. Um, I've currently, finally got a Capital One card, uh, and that has the same thing. Just I think that's a really important thing for travelers. You need to have a card that will not charge you fees. And you also need a card where they're not going to freak out if you're charging things in different countries. Um, like yes. I've had that happen before, but with my new card, like I was going to Italy, um, and I mean, I live in Japan, but like the card is American, so it's like, ah. So like I gave them, you know, a 
call. It's like, you know, I, I will be traveling and whatnot. And basically their answer is, yeah, we, we expect people to do that. We don't care. It's like, oh, well, that's refreshing. So I think that's, the cards have gotten better about that, which is great. Well, because, especially ones with travel rewards. It's like they now know their target audience. So yeah. and awesome. make, Making that phone call abroad is not easy sometimes. Exactly. So, that yeah. back on. so if you don't have a card like that um before traveling do give them a call so they can just make a note of it and you're not going to end up with a frozen card in the middle of nowhere which has happened to me um and that was not fun so (laughs) well i just have a couple more questions for you one of them really important question i think if you're trying to give advice Mm. to somebody who is overwhelmed by the idea of travel or Mm. has not taken that trip they've always wanted to take Mm -hmm. but they've been dreaming about it what advice would you have for someone like that who is still trying to push travel boundaries well the first thing I would do is select a destination that maybe isn't too out there like you know going to got Burma or something sorry Myanmar whichever one is (laughs) appropriate at this time so I was hard to tell at the as your first trip can be rather overwhelming. So, um, like, if you're in the United States, then maybe going to South America um, is a relatively easy one and not super expensive. Um, Like, at this point, you can get over the border relatively easily. Um, Mm -hmm. And you can expect some amount of English help. Or, that's another tip, is go to a country where people speak English. So go to Australia or the UK um you know canada would be a really Can- easy oh, start canada. oh there you go sorry like, i was freaking about poor canada oh. despite desperately <laughs> wanting to go there um but yeah go to canada just but uh yeah just, just do something kind of low stakes i think then if there is a country you desperately want to go to it's just like that you know i, I see a lot of people i mean i used to work and I still work in close contact with the travel industries. Like Japan is an aspirational um, destination for a lot of people, and it should be. It is awesome. It's an amazing place. But if you are a little bit worried about dealing with it yourself, just get go on a tour, a package tour. A lot of them, I mean, people say they're expensive. But, I mean, if you break a lot of these things down, uh, you end up paying the same or in some cases less than you would if you did it all by yourself um if you want to stay especially in like nice-ish hotels and things like that that way you know the planning is done by someone else you have you know a native guide to help show you around and if you're not like the i mean i'm not a person who likes being guided you can get things that you know range where you know you get a little bit of help or just something that is you know fully guided all the time there's all sorts of companies out there um, for any destination. People also forget about the time that they save by exactly. having them plan it all and take you everywhere. Exactly. Because I know I've spent a lot of time on a street corner looking at a map trying mm-hmm. to get to the next place and then finally closed and all this other stuff. Exactly. So it just smooths things out and, you know, having that first trip go smoothly is, um, especially if you're traveling with another person who is maybe even more anxious about it than you just kind of helps smooth it out make it a a positive first trip as well great well okay my final question and um i I really hope listeners go and have a a closer look at this and that they even buy (laughs) what you've created recently um so you've been mentioning travel writing and things Mm -hmm. like that and you said before that you love travel especially for food yes (laughs) so can you tell our listeners what you wrote okay uh well shameless plug but um well i 
have been vegetarian since the age of about eight. Um, and then once coming to Japan, I kind of just went vegan, as it were, uh, for a whole series of reasons. And yeah, I spent a lot of time like looking for and trying vegan restaurants. And I have an Instagram account, which is Tokyo Vegan Guide. And I kept on getting questions by so many people. It's like, how, where are these places? Will I survive? Will I only eat rice my entire time there? I'm like, no, you'll be fine. Um, and basically, in an attempt to help out people with, you know, um, plant-based diets, and to some extent also gluten-free diets, I ended up writing the Tokyo Vegan Guide. Um, you can find it on Amazon. There's only one, <laughs> not surprisingly. Uh, I have it in both Kindle and paperback. And I will probably in September be releasing the 2018 version, so which is updated. So the 2017 version had 50 restaurants around Tokyo. And in the last couple years, the vegan sort of plant-based movement has boomed here. So the next, the 2018 version has 70 restaurants. Wow. So uh, you're definitely not going to starve. So yeah, please, um, if you are a vegan, vegetarian person coming to Tokyo or know somebody who this might be useful for, please forward them to Amazon. I would be very grateful. <laughs> I think it's great because I don't know if our listeners are aware that, you know, Japan is a notoriously difficult place to really know if you're getting a vegan dish yeah. or even a vegetarian dish. I think people think Japanese food, it's healthy, but it's not vegetarian for the no, most part. No, it's like the dashi, which is, you know, fish stock, uh, fish broth is in a lot of things, including some things that look like desserts. Uh, there's mitarashi dango, there's kind of like little dumplings in a sort of sweet and savory sauce. Those have fish powder in them, very sadly. Um, but, uh, so, I think the guide is, I've gotten comments from um, people who, readers of the guide, who aren't actually vegetarian or vegan, but they have really serious fish allergies or shellfish allergies, and we're re they really want to come to Japan, but we're really worried. And so using the vegan... Uh, vegan restaurants means that they could travel safely. And so it's like, oh, it's so nice to hear that. It's like, oh, I helped somebody, yay, kind of thing. But uh, yeah, definitely. So if, if you are a person who likes fish and meat and all that stuff, you're, you'll be very happy here. There's, you know, tons and tons to eat. Yes, <laughs> I, I do still believe that the food in Japan is the best food I've ever had in the world. Except Italy. Oh, wait a minute. No, you know Italy sorry. a lot better no, than I'm me. Kidding, all right, well, well, we're going to have to maybe go on the road and have a Yeah, we'll have, have to taste comparison. test all of this, you know. <laughs> yeah, if then anyone again, wants to pay for that, just let us know. Yeah, um, yeah, we're open for all sorts of collaborations <laughs> with food. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I, I can tell you, readers, I did read the Tokyo Vegan Guide, and I've been to a few of the places. I'm not a vegan myself, but I think it's just a really helpful resource for oh. all the reasons that you mentioned, and I'm excited to read the next version. Yay! Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I had a great time researching it, and I've eaten my way through the entire city, so I can't complain. <laughs> so lucky, girl. Well, where can people find you? As you said, should they go on Instagram to... Yep. The, is it the Tokyo Vegan Guide nope, or just Tokyo? it's just... Um, I mean, if you put hashtag Tokyo Vegan Guide or at Tokyo Vegan Guide, um, you can find me, and uh, I offer plenty of free information about restaurants there, too. Uh, you can also... I mean... 
with my name, there's really only a few of few people in the world with my name. Uh, so at, if you look at chiaraterzolo.weebly.com, you can see examples of my travel writing um, and societal writing and whatnot. Um, you can find a lot of the stuff I've written all over the place in Gaijin Pot and Savvy, uh, Jet Setter, all sorts of places, um, and as well as the site where I am editor-in-chief, which is All About Japan, which is obviously not written just by me. We have lots of collaborators, um, and that is very good if it is your first time visiting Japan or if you plan to live in Japan or move to Japan. We have lots of info that can help you there, too. Well, thank you so much, Kira. You're such a wealth of knowledge about <laughs> Japan and travel in general, I would say. And thank you for sharing your unique background with us. Thank you. I hope it inspires a lot of people to travel to all these places yes, they want, yes. including the Crab City. I'm still, I'm going to find it. Yeah, number no, 11. definitely. The Crab City was awesome. <laughs> it's like, I definitely want to go back. Go see, see if the crabs remember me. Well, thank you very much. All right, thank you. I hope that you enjoyed that interview with Kiara. I also want to let you know that Kiara, as she mentioned, was coming out with an updated version of her Tokyo Vegan Guide, and it was released on Amazon on September 15th. So if you go to Amazon and just type Tokyo Vegan Guide, hers is the only guide that will come up. So I hope that you find that useful. And I want to leave you with the travel quote of the week. This is from one of my favorite travelers who I, I think many of us who saw his show aspired to be and were even inspired to travel in the first place by him. This is from Anthony Bourdain. If I'm an advocate for anything, it's to move as far as you can across the ocean or simply across the river. The extent to which you can walk in someone else's shoes or at least eat their food, it's a plus for everybody. Open your mind, get up off the couch, move. Thanks for listening to the School of Travels podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to The Sam Chase for allowing us to use their song, In a Perfect World. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode, and remember to always let travel be your teacher. If you keep your options open, there are places you will go. They will treat you like the kings and queens your parents thought you'd be when you were born. You'd see it all with your head up standing tall, and you'd look back and think it's funny how you spent your time and money in this world. Living in this